we sang and can it be uh, hymn by Charles Wesley there it was number 61 and the third stanza began saying long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night and the scriptures speak about men and their sin and you'll recall I was just reading the other evening a night or two three ago um, Isaiah 61 in Isaiah 61 the prophet writes these words that are kind of along that theme there that we're reading in that uh, in that hymn and one of the one of the great things about this passage here in Isaiah 61 is in the book of Matthew it is said that the Lord Jesus was in a synagogue and the scroll was handed to him to read and he opens a scroll to this section of Isaiah 61 and the Lord Jesus says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me now remember Isaiah writes this more than 700 years before the arrival of the Lord Jesus and he says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives opening of the prison to those who are bound so the hymn we're singing there is a reference to the prophets speaking about what the gospel would do to release men and women who were held captive by their sinful natures to be condemned to death by their sins I just love that the Lord opens that and, and reads that in the, in the congregation when he was handed the scroll we're going to be in Romans uh, the last couple of verses of Romans 7 and then um, into chapter 8 here it's where we had been last week and this morning we're gonna we're gonna talk for a few minutes about the wretch who is delivered that word wretch you're gonna see there Paul refers to in verse uh, 24 chapter 7 and verse 24 we're gonna speak about the wretch who is delivered by Christ so read with me I'm just gonna read from verse uh, 24 through chapter 8 and verse 2 okay so 724 to 8 and verse 2 actually back up just a tiny bit it's, it's going to give us a tiny bit more helpful context 23 I'm going to start at 723 where Paul says I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members that's like saying in his person there is a rule like the rule of gravity like the rules of nature at work in his person there's a rule in him it's a law and he sees this that is bringing him into captivity on the law of sin which is in his members and then he says oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, 
the law of sin. Now chapter 8, which could very well be even the end of chapter 7. I don't know that making this a separate chapter makes a lot of sense. But then he, he goes on to say here, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So these two uh, sections, the the end of 7 and the beginning of 8, go together here in one thought. And what I want to do with you first, to, to bring this together, this little bitty section here in Romans, I want to bring together with, with the flow of the context of where we've been in past weeks. So let's follow Paul's train of thought. Let's follow what he has been explaining as if you sat down with this letter that he wrote to the Romans and just sat there and read it. Remember a number of weeks ago, I said that if if you and I sat down and read chapters 1 through 4 in one sitting, depending on how fast or how slow of a reader you are, you, you might pull that off in about 15, 20 minutes. If you're a slow reader, maybe it would take you 30 minutes or 40 minutes, but this is a letter. It's, it's just a letter that's chopped up in the chapters many, many years later. So I want to bring you into the context of, of what would be fresh in your mind. So chapter 1, 16 to 18, has some really, really crucial thoughts in it for us to be able to connect together. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So you're familiar with that. You remember that he said he's not ashamed of the gospel. And and he said, following that, I would have put it the other way, the man I would never presume to correct the Apostle. The Apostle says in the next verse, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let me explain to you. God's wrath is coming, men and women. The wrath of God is coming. Therefore, you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. You should be hopeful and you should be excited about the gospel. You should be focused on the gospel. It is your hope for enduring the wrath of God. That's the train of thought, right? The wrath of God is is coming. So this is a solid basis and foundation on the, the very, very introduction of Paul's explanation of the gospel. We get to chapter 3. We, we work through following this here, these couple of verses, and then into chapter 2, and then in the the beginning of chapter 3, he begins to explain and defend and and define for you and I that Jews are all guilty of sin, Gentiles are all guilty of sin. In other words, everybody is standing in line to face the wrath of God. And then we read at Romans 3, 23 and 24, with this foundation of the gospel as an escape from his wrath. 
And then the fact that everybody is standing in the face of this wrath that is on its way here. He says in verse 21, chapter 3 and verse 21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The righteousness of God being announced and described to you as the way to escape the wrath of God. Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not sort of man righteous. The righteousness of God becomes your righteousness when you put faith in Christ the way the gospel describes us. The righteousness of God becomes ours by faith. And then verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Maybe one of the most important statements about the gospel right there. Justification is that that judicial announcement when the judge says you are innocent and you are now righteous in the sight of the state. In the sight of the king, justification is you being given perfect righteousness, God's righteousness. It's a legal standing that is given to a person who has put their faith in Christ. That right there in the close to the end of chapter 3 of Romans. Chapter 4, you remember, mentions two people by name, David and Abraham. Both as examples of people who have been made righteous by faith. So, boom, we're done with 4. Chapter 5 speaks about benefits of justification. If you have been justified or being justified, being a person who now wears the righteousness of Christ, here are even greater and more benefits of the fact that you have been justified in Christ. That's chapter 5, the blessings of justification. Chapter 6 goes on to say, you are dead to sin. The person who has put his faith in Christ the saved one is not to continue in sin. You're actually to have an attitude that is opposed to sin because you have died with Christ to sin. Let's look at 6, 1 to 4. Chapter 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Justification by faith. The righteousness of Christ glorious benefits by the grace and mercy of God doesn't mean ever ignore sin. It doesn't mean that. Should we say, should we continue in sin? That grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Chapter 7 continues on the theme of a person having died with Christ. Death with Christ to sin and married to a new master. In other words, if you died to your previous spouse, there's a picture of a person's obligation to the law. And there's no excuse ever to be a lawbreaker. 
but he gave us this illustration that he said, if, if you died and then this person lives, this spouse here lives, they're free to remarry. And if this person can remarry, that means the obligation to the law over here is legally annulled. You don't have an obligation to the law for your righteousness, in other words. And he had also warned us you're never going to be made righteous by keeping the law, but now you're released from the law the law and the death of the law. Now you are married to a new master. That's the picture given to us in Romans chapter 4. And then the last section, I'm sorry, in, the, in Romans 7. The last part, probably about the last half of Romans chapter 7, taught us that Paul himself lived in this understanding of sin's influence on his own life. And in a certain way, he explained his own slavery to sin. How sin is constantly at work in him. Remember one of the things we saw that there was sin and him together in him. Sin was with him in him. Sin was always at work on him, pressing against him, enslaving him to sin. And he spoke about this reality of sin at work in him at the last uh, section of chapter 7 there. And he describes what it's like to be a sinner. And then at the end of chapter 7, he expresses his longing for a deliverer. You recall that. You remember he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? He finally says in verse 24 of chapter 7, 24, which we read a moment ago, and, and now that you get the context as he's explaining these things going on, he's understanding salvation, he sees sins working in a man, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Christ Jesus. I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of death. It seems like he's helpless in sin. I, I, I think that Christians in, in our proper reading of the Bible, we understand that sin is always pressing itself against you and against me, even if you're a, a Christian. There are these places like in chapter 2 and verse 4 where he touches on a person's Understanding of what does it mean to be with sin that is constantly opposing us. Sometimes we choose to ignore it maybe, but look what he says in chapter 2 and verse 4. He's speaking about sin here. He says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What is gospel repentance except for to turn from your sins? The gospel never tells you to get comfortable with your sin, to be content or, or restful in your sin. There's another example of this in chapter 6 and verse 1 where, where he reminded us, shall we continue in sin? No, may it never be. There's this constant pressure and stress on a, on a Christian's life when it comes to sin. So let me talk to you for a minute now I want to talk to you about Paul's sense of condemnation. As you recall, we, we just read chapter 8 in the beginning of it. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation. A Christian who has never felt condemnation 
A person who has never had a sense of condemnation at, at this point is completely disengaged from the gospel. At this point we have no, no heartfelt understanding of the gospel anymore. So the gospel, in the end of Romans chapter 7, we're reminded and it's demonstrated to us, it's for sinners like you. When, when we read about Paul's interaction with sin and how it's constantly pushing on him, he senses, he knows this conflict in him, which brings him to 8-1, an amazing relief, joy, and discovering that there is a deliverer and a savior. So when, when we get to 8, your relief, your joy, your understanding of the gospel must kind of be on the other side of the teeter-totter here. There, 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 there's a give and take kind of, there's a, uh, a relationship like this that the, the dreadfulness of death and sin must be understood as your condemnation if the deliverer is going to be your joy of salvation. We, we have to see these things in a great contrast. So I want to encourage you as, as you think about this, I'm going to read a passage to you in 1 Corinthians 6, thinking about your own sins. Your own sins. Your recollection of your sins. How do you remember them? Or how do you even know them today or last week? Your knowledge and your recollection of your own sins. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, <clears throat> He's speaking to a, a group of Christians who really are, are, probably some of them aren't even Christians, but some of them are Christians and they're living in sin in this, uh, in this congregation in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? A person who is living in ongoing sin, in so many words, he's saying, has not been affected by the gospel. This person has not died with Christ in their sin. They're living in their sin. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He, he, he lists these things for you and I to look at and not only say, oh yeah, I see, I see those terrible sinners who will never inherit the kingdom of God. Every time we read a list of sins in the New Testament, it may be your temptation to read those lists and go, yeah, I see them all around me. And it's possible you're unable to see any of these things in yourself. The gospel requires you to know yourself as a sinner. The gospel requires for you to know yourself as somebody who is standing in line for the wrath of God that comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If you don't see yourself there, then the gospel and the offer of salvation is never going to grip you. It, it will never draw you to Christ. So these lists are meant to show us the sins that Christ died for, the sins that will condemn all men who have ever lived. I don't know why, but it seems our minds kind of gravitate toward the worst ones and just go, man, that is so terrible that men are like that. 
Instead of seeing maybe the ones that are daily done by ourselves. Romans 7 speaks about a Christian's death to sin. Death to sin. Why? Why does Romans 7 teach somebody who knows the gospel that they're dead to sin? Why? Well, I think it's because we can become comfortable with some sin. Sometimes we wouldn't. Sometimes we just know, oh, I would never do that. But I think we become comfortable with some sin. And so there's this teaching that began at chapter 6 and it goes through chapter 7 and it says you died with Christ to sin. Have you? Is your recollection of when you first began to know who Christ is in truth, was, is your knowledge and your recollection of that in your experience a sensitivity to your own sin and sinfulness? Did you hear the Lord or the apostles denouncing sin and feel the wrath of God being pointed toward you? Condemnation pointed toward you? Because the gospel holds out hope for the condemned. The gospel is righteousness for sinners. But if you've never seen yourself as that, then the gospel just goes right over your head. The gospel doesn't speak to us. You and I must learn to see and acknowledge sin and sin's work in us. It helps us recognize our need for salvation. So I want to encourage you to know your sin by name. Call your sin what it is. Yours. When, you, when you're in prayer this evening before you go to bed, and let's, let's just say sometimes you use the Lord's Prayer as, a, as a, a prayer to help you kind of pray through the things that you want to pray for. There is a, a, a line in the Lord's Prayer that says, Lord, forgive us our trespasses. So don't say, Lord, forgive us our trespasses. Say, Lord, forgive me my adulterous heart. If, if you were wrestling with an adulterous thought today or a covetous affection today, you and the Lord do business of, of your dealing with and your confessing your sin. Name it. See, your temptation is to just call it trespasses. Why? It's nice and generic. Or maybe you'll even take it one step further back from that. Lord, forgive me for my accidents today. I misspoke. It's a little softer, isn't it? Say, Lord, forgive me for my blasphemy today. Lord, forgive me for my theft or my lie today. Name your sins to the Lord. You know why? Because if you don't, if you get in the habit of glossing over your sins, then you begin to think lightly about salvation. 
then you begin to think low about the greatest thing in the universe. I mean, isn't it horrible that you and I can go through life thinking lightly about the gift that God has given to you by letting you wear the righteousness of Christ when He died on the cross to pay for your sins and my sins? I mean, does it bother you that you cannot appreciate that with a full, massive heart of gratitude to the Lord for dying for sinners? Name your sins. Say, Lord, this is what kind of sin I've sinned today. I've gossiped about this person. I looked down on this person. And yet, Lord, you've been patient and gracious with me when I'm acting the same way. The gospel's for sinners. The gospel is offered to you for forgiveness of your sins. And you have a high priest. You know, the fact that the Lord Jesus is a high priest, Hebrews chapter 5, and I think chapter 6, speak about his priesthood today. He is a priest today. What do you bring to the priest? You bring your thank offerings. You bring your sin offerings. Who's your sin offering? Christ. What sin do you need offerings for? We bring them to Him. He's our high priest. He's our mediator between us and between God. When Paul cries, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is, is, is making out loud known that Paul knows his condemnation. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you have a body of death, my friends? Do you have a body of death? Are you a sinner that God could rightly kill and be guilty of no wrong? If God killed you for your sins, could you complain to Him and would your complaint stick? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Can I encourage you? To go down the road in your heart of this honest man's confession of his sin. Can you do that? Can you take to the Lord your confession of your sin? Say, Lord, who will save me from this body of death? And remember his answer. This is the glorious thing of the gospel. What's his answer? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus the Lord. Can you do that? Do you bring that to Him? It keeps you glorifying the Lord, doesn't it? If you confess your sins and you know the, the basis of forgiveness of sin, if you know that's in Christ, that is glorifying of the Savior. It is practicing what you say you believe when you confess your sins. And you ask the Lord for forgiveness. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's sense of his own lostness, his, his, his desire for a Savior, and his immediate words are his gratitude and his thanks. Again, this comes from this knowledge that we touched on a moment ago in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God. Do you have any fear of the wrath of God? Have you ever come up to the, 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 the rim of hell and hell's sadness and hell's grief and hell's loneliness and hell's godlessness? Have you ever kind of gone there in your mind and in your heart and just dreaded it? Have you ever thought, what a horrible 
suffering, eternal end for men. Matthew 25, 27 is one of many teachings that the Lord wove this teaching into his teachings. Matthew 25, 27, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, he says to the man who had received a talent. The Lord has given something to somebody and the Lord expected something in return from it. The man says, here, I'm just giving it back to you. I didn't really want to deal with it. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back with interest. So take the talent from him give it to him who has ten for to everyone who has more, everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance but from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This isn't an isolated one-off message the Lord Jesus gives. There is a place of eternal wrath and condemnation, darkness, gnashing of teeth. And you and I each know people who will suffer there for eternity. And if you're not someone who has put your hope and trust in Christ for salvation, you will suffer there for eternity. The, the, the reality of the condemnation of those who do not have the righteousness of Christ is one of the most horrible realities of the age. Those who wasted their talents and would not serve the one who gave them their talents, the one who wasted them, are promised they would suffer for eternity. Now you and I have talents. The chief one in this parable in its application for a Christian is probably the... The, the, the investment of the gospel and your knowledge of the gospel that's been given you a, a, a talent isn't your ability to play the guitar but the, the, the story is something God gave these characters something to invest for him what has the Lord given you to invest for him well ultimately in the context of Roman a life that has died to sin and raised with Christ to bear fruit unto God. That's what should come of your talents. Fruit unto God. Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Talents are your knowledge of the gospel. Can you express, can you communicate to a friend their lostness and sin and their hope of salvation in Christ? Has God invested the gospel in you so you can turn around and, and say the gospel to somebody? Or do you just keep it buried under a rock like this worthless servant who would not serve the Lord with what he had given to him? God has given you a mouth by which you can praise him. He's given you a heart by which you can love him. He's given you a mind by which you can know him deeply. He's given you a mouth to speak wisdom that you have drunk from His Word. Men should use these talents for the world where the Lord has 
place them in particular Christian men and women should use these things that he's given us for his own glory. You shouldn't be using your talents for your own pleasures and for your own glory. Don't squander the investment that the Lord has, has given you and I. You know, when men, when men hear the warnings of Christ, like this warning in, in Matthew 25, when you hear this warning about wasting talents or about using them well, when you hear this warning, some will respond like what Paul said just a moment ago. He says, who will deliver me? He finds sin at work in him. Sin wasting. Sin being served. And then he says, who will deliver me? He wants to be delivered from condemnation. He wants the righteousness of Christ. It's not to serve the Lord. So they take the weight of their sin. They, they hear the offer of the gospel. They hear the offer of forgiveness and they bring their sins to the Lord Jesus and they confess their sins to the Lord and they ask forgiveness for their sins. And they're forgiven. They're forgiven. They're given eternal life. The condemned find the offer of life in Christ. You find the hope of perfect righteousness, not semi-righteousness. I mean, isn't it a glorious thought to realize that if you have come to Christ by faith, if you repent of your sins and seek the Lord Jesus for righteousness, you perfectly and completely wear the righteousness of Christ before God. What a glorious, amazing hope that that is. That is not a partial hope. The condemned find hope for forgiveness in the gospel. And so when we begin chapter 8, which says there is therefore now no condemnation, and we've just barely lightly touched on the subject of, of condemnation. When, when, you, when, when you read Paul's announcement, there is therefore now no condemnation. This is meant to be like a, a, a breath of air if you have been held under water. Can you see that? When, when you and I are properly weighed down by our sins, have, you, have any of you ever been trapped under water too long? Or maybe you tried to go too deep and you realize, I'm not sure that I can get all the way back up to where I want to go before i got to breathe. I've been underwater a few times where it felt like it was too long and I thought I might drown. It's a really very desperate feeling when you can't get air and you've been held underwater. Seaweeds maybe wrapped around your legs. Or the wave is too big and you're too deep and you're too far down there and the wave's still holding you down, the wave's still holding you down, the wave's still holding you, you're about to die. Sin is like that, you know. If you have a proper view of sin, sin is like the seaweed at 40 feet. And you're tangled up in it. What are you going to do? When you're finally offered release from condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation. It's like bursting out of the top of the water and being able to breathe a deep breath of air. It's a release. It's a relief. It's life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. We'll get down that road a little bit next week. The law of life versus the law of death. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Let me hit three points real quickly here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Have you repented of your sin and begun believing in Jesus Christ? That was touched on in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of Christ is yours by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is how Romans is taught you and I what it means. By faith in the Lord Jesus, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus becomes your righteousness. In Christ there is no condemnation. Why? Because Romans 3.22 said... You who have believed in the Lord Jesus possess something. Therefore, you cannot be condemned. And this something is the righteousness of Christ. You cannot be condemned if you wear the righteousness of Christ. How is the righteousness of Christ yours? By believing and trusting in the gospel proclamation of the Lord Jesus. You believe in the Lord Jesus. You hide in the Lord Jesus. You walk with the Lord Jesus. Number two, being in Christ means you are no longer in Adam. And this is another important point that has been touched on in the Gospel of Romans. Adam and all of the progeny of Adam die in Adam's sin. This is a Big theme here in Romans. In Adam means in death. There is no condemnation in Christ because you are no longer in Adam if you have put your trust in Christ. Huge theme that if you can get these pieces in, in your mind, it's pretty mind-boggling. Romans 5.18 Romans 5.18 Therefore... As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Who was the one man? Adam. One man's offense. Judgment came to all men. In Adam, condemnation. It says, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification in life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. In Christ is no longer in Adam. Adam, condemnation. Adam, sin. Adam, death. Christ, Righteousness, Christ, life. In Christ is no condemnation. Finally, third point. In Christ means you have been joined to Christ in his death to sin. In his death to sin. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, or certainly not. How shall we who died sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
Now this is a really important in Christ here. Therefore, he says, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If you have been buried with Christ, we'll get into that a little bit more next week, I think. If you have been buried with Christ, then the law's claim to you and or sin's claim to you for your death is already met. In Christ, death cannot have you because you've already died. If you're in Christ, then it's done. Therefore, you are free to live. The death has been paid. So that third point, if you're in Christ, you have died with Christ. His death to sin is your death to sin. His life after death is your life after death. So being in Christ is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amazing passage here to teach you and I these essentials of the gospel for you to contemplate and comprehend on your it, it, it must be in terms of the gospel, but it must be you relating to Christ. You bringing your sin to Christ. You repenting of your sin. Not sin in general, your sin. You come to the Lord. You seek forgiveness. You, you believe these accusations of your sinfulness and your need of a Savior or face condemnation and you confess your sins. You put your trust in Christ. You enter into Christ by faith, owning the righteousness of Christ. And when we read, when we read these words that introduce Romans chapter 8, it really is a glorious conclusion, a, a, a glorious summary of our hope when he says there is therefore now no condemnation. What condemnation was that? All the way back there in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God coming in judgment against ungodliness, against sinners. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because he is your perfect righteousness. He did not die when he was put to death. God offers you his righteousness because you put your faith and your trust in him. You know the deliverer? Have you hid yourself in the deliverer? Do you know the Christ who is the deliverer? Do you hide in Christ with joy in your knowledge of the gospel because you don't have to face the condemnation that comes against the world? Do you know the Savior? If you put your faith and your hope in this Savior, oh, I hope, how I hope you have. He is the way. He said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father except by me. And, and, and this is why. This is why. It's a glorious truth. Let's close in prayer. Well, Lord God, I thank you for the gospel. Lord, I thank you for 
opening our eyes with the light of the gospel to the darkness and the deadliness of sin. And Lord, I pray for your help as, as each of us works to understand the work of sin in our own lives, in our own mouths. Lord, help us to be honest in our confessions of our own sins to you, Lord. And, oh Lord, <coughs> forgive us, Lord. My sin is on the Lord Jesus at the cross, my mouth, my mind, my coveting, oh Lord, these sent the Savior to the cross and you offered eternal life in exchange. What a what an unlikely exchange, God. How we thank you and praise you for your rich generosity to us. God, I pray these things in the name of the great Savior and High Priest. Amen.